Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. My guest on this episode is the American artist Catherine Opie. Working in photography, she documents America in its many forms, from family portraits to awe-inspiring natural wonders, from underrepresented communities to sprawling cityscapes, while always pushing the boundaries of accepted norms and preconceived ideas of societal structures. I reached her in her home in Los Angeles earlier this year, when the city was still in the midst of the COVID pandemic and ahead of the publication of a new book celebrating 30 years of her work. We discussed her upbringing, her creative process, what it was like photographing Elizabeth Taylor's home, how she sets herself apart as a queer photographer, and how her work is about the struggle of identity in relationship to American identity. Kathy, it's wonderful to be talking to you this evening for me and this morning for you, I believe. Um, I'm in London, by the way. Oh, that's great. And where are you? Uh, in Los Angeles in my studio. This is my little front desk area of the studios. I moved down here uh, during COVID just so that um, Heather and I wouldn't share the same office space. So there was always this nice little front desk area that I actually looked at uh, in a way that I actually liked. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to move down here. It looks very snug. Yeah, it is. It's nice. And how's the pandemic situation out there? Is it, are you on lockdown right now? I mean, I basically go home and I come to the studio and those are my two places I occupy, but we also have a, fortunately, a house in the mountains. So we go up there from time to time. My wife and I look at each other and we're just like, do we have any more, anything else to say to each other? They're like, really? Because we haven't know, right. spent this much time together in our entire marriage. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, my partner and I have realized that it, we actually get along pretty well because we've managed to cope this far without killing each other. So it's a good start. That's good. Now, same with, with, uh, with Julie and I. Like, we actually appreciate each other so much. So, it's nice, right? Yeah, it's there nice is an to upside. appreciate the person that you're with. So, Kathy, we're speaking to each other because you are publishing a book in a few yeah. months, which is yes. coming out in a few months' time. I have not seen the actual book. I've been sent a PDF, so um, I've seen it in sort of mini, mini form, but it looks like a very impressive compendium celebrating sort of 30 years or more of your work, mm-hmm. including all portraits, and landscapes, cityscapes, architecture, and it's sort of an incredible body of work. How does it feel for you seeing all your work assembled like that? I mean, it's, it's amazing to be able to do and also to work on a book on this scale in which it's not necessarily uh, a part of a catalog for a museum exhibition, which my prior books, even though I really, really love them, they also told the story of, uh, of the exhibition. And uh, so this book is telling the story more of my relationship to my medium and photography and how I have, you know, spent most of my life actually doing this. And so what's really great about the book is there's images in it that aren't in 
have never been seen before uh, because we pulled from the archive and it made me appreciate the archive in a very different way. It's like, oh, wow, I'm sitting on like all these years of thinking about photography and all of this work that hasn't even appeared in, in um, you know, exhibitions. And so it's, it's a really good moment where I feel that the book, again, will explain a little bit more about my interest in relationship to what I do um, and how it traverses through these different, you know, landscapes, so to speak, from portraiture to landscape to cities and on to all of that. Yeah, yeah, no, I really, that's something that really struck me when I, when I looked at it too. Um, so I wanted to speak to you about photography and about the craft of photography. Um, you grew up in Ohio and at the age of nine was when you received your first camera, which yeah. I believe was a, a Kodak Instamatic. And this would have been around 1970, just to put it into some kind of context, but it was the start of a lifelong passion for you. Can you talk a bit about your love of the process of photography and the sort of technical side of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is part of it is the process of it. But I think what is so amazing to me is that the fact that the present becomes the past and what our, what is our relationship to that in terms of looking. And I've always been interested in it, even though I can be a highly nostalgic person, it's more about its relationship, not to nostalgia, because I think nostalgia to a certain extent can not really describe our, our state of being or longing or anything as human beings. It's just, it's this, it's this vacid, you know, vacid emotion, like just uh, vapid. That's the word I was looking for uh, that gets attached to things. And um, so I, I picked up a camera because I just wanted to. My grandfather had a dark room and I had spent some time with him in it and I thought it was utterly magical. My mom took an enormous amount of, of photos of us as kids, as well as movies. She always seemed to have a Super 8 movie camera in her hand or an 8mm movie camera. And so I remember those, you know, I grew up at that time period, you know, in, in I was born in 1961. So it was literally like your mom would pick up the movie from the drugstore and the little silver screen would go up in the living room and the eight millimeter projector would come out and you would watch the, you know, your life on this screen in a certain way. And I, and I do think that that's an influence in a, in a certain way that I automatically began to understand kind of the power of imagery. But it really, really for me came from writing this book report on Lewis Hine. I mean, it really goes back to that where I had to write a book report and about Lewis Hine, and instead I just described the photograph of the girl at the Carolina Mill and what that image did and thinking about uh, that. And I think also I spent my childhood at my dad's factory. So I think that I already had a relationship to the idea of factories and what that meant. And I would go and spend the weekends putting keychains on little wooden baubles uh, because our com our family owned a wood manufacturing company. And all of that, I think, just allowed me to think about what it is in terms to capture 
our ideas uh, in, in, in images. And it's so interesting relating to today when everybody has such easy access to a, to a camera. Which is um, fascinating. I, it's, a whole, it's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose the social commentary aspect of what you were uh, mentioning is so interesting. Um, one thing that, that you're particularly well known for is your portraiture. And you've photographed over the years an enormous range of people um, from your friends in the gay and lesbian community to young American football players to even well-known faces like David Hockney. Mm -hmm. This is quite a sort of basic question in a way, but just to my point about everybody having a phone, what do you think makes a good portrait? Mm. That's a really hard question, right? Because everybody <laughs> has their different tastes. I would say that one, the, a good portrait for me is a humanistic portrait. It's a portrait that you can look at and gaze upon, hopefully for more than one moment. Um, a good portrait in my mind for my own work is one that uh, is, uh, is something that has depth in my mind, but it also lacks emotion. And so I often tell everybody who sits for me not to smile. Uh, I'm very clear in terms of directing how hands and so forth um, are placed, uh, how the body is sitting. And sometimes I can do it because I already know that person and I see that in them. And other times it's just purely how I imagine I want to see the person. So it goes back and forth from that way, but there's a utter amount of control in my sittings, but it, they go really, really fast. So somebody like Peter Hujar would like photograph somebody for hours, right? And I'm, I, I want everybody out of the studio within 30 to 45 minutes. I don't want to put them through a lot. So the portraits have this very quietness to them as though they, you know, um, they took a long time, but they're actually made very quickly. But I think a portrait for me is not one that um, is one that can hold a range of things in terms of the viewer looking upon it. And of course, the history of painting <laughs> is always yes. embedded in the yes. work. <laughs> well, I was going to come to that because there is this sort of majesty to your portraiture and you've spoken a lot about, you know, the influence of Holbein on your work. I mean, why do you lay out the photos in that way with the sort of, you know, the red background, that sort of strong light and dark? Is there some sort of messaging that you're trying to convey? Well, I think with the colored backgrounds, it was really, when you have to think about when I was using the colored backgrounds in the, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, that it wasn't something that we knew in relationship to thinking about portraiture and photography. We knew it from a fashion standpoint, but from a fine art uh, standpoint, we really didn't think about using color in that way. And I think it was a way for me to also differentiate myself from Maplethorpe, because Maplethorpe was so large of an influence, especially in terms of the queerness within his work, that I wanted to do something that popped, that was a little different, that felt that it also was taking it out of a documentary voice. Because even though I you know, studied and called myself a documentary photographer, I also knew that the portraits of my friends 
um, I needed to have the body be the document and not the site, not the place that they lived in. And that was another very different way to reposition what photography was doing specifically after the picture generation. But it's interesting you ma- you mentioned Maplethorpe and, you know, you yourself, in the, he, he was known for his sort of um, graph, quite graphic and shocking photography as you also became known for your self-portraits around this time in the early 90s. Um, your series of, of self-portraits, some of which featured self-mutilation and going back to this Holbein reference, I read somewhere that you called um, the pervert portrait your Henry VIII yeah. image, which of course is a, a picture that hangs in the National Gallery here in London. And you've said also about how it was having sort of complete power over your body in relationship to how homophobia has affected you. Can you talk a bit about how that how you feel now when you look at those strong images? Because um, I have my thoughts about my feelings towards them, but I'm interested to hear about what how you feel now looking back at them. Then, is, do you recognise yourself in them? I mean, you don't make a, a portraits like that unless you want portraits to kind of stand um, in time, so to speak. And mm. even though I'm much older now. You know, I really, really feel that they're utterly emblematic in the time of the culture wars that I was living in in America. And uh, I think that so much of my work is about the kind of struggle of identity in relationship to an American identity and what those kind of preconceived ideas are. And it's interesting because you use the word self-mutilation, but I never think of it as mutilation. Because it's not secret. I'm not in a room by myself cutting myself in secret, you know. I'm doing it very strategically, very well planned out with people who actually know how to uh, manipulate the body in that way with scalpels and so forth. So they're professionals who are doing it. So right. So it's almost like a, ta- like a tattooist or... Yeah. It's a, it's a bit That's like a tattoo. I mean, yeah. they're... The one, the first self-portrait, self-portrait cutting on my back uh, was not meant to be a permanent tattoo, but pervert, uh, per, or permanent cutting, but pervert was and, and still right. is. And, you know, blood was a substance that was feared. I mean, you, we were in the middle of uh, the, the AIDS epidemic. I had lost an enormous amount of my friends. And so to use that substance of the body, blood, And even though I'm not a religious person, I also understand the iconography of religion in relationship to the body and blood. And so I wanted to try to like bring that into a dialogue in terms of my own community and queer culture. And do you feel like it had the effect, the desired effect? I didn't know what the desired effect was to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was making those images, I hadn't ever really had any exhibitions except for a couple group shows. Uh, I was, you know, um, the first place that pervert ever showed publicly was the Whitney Museum of American Art in, in the biennial. And so I didn't have a preconceived notion of how the work would be received because I was making it within my tight knit community. And I knew what our language was around the body. I mean, it was, you know, it's a a community that I had been a part of for a really long time in terms of the leather community 
of both San Francisco and LA. But I didn't really expect other things out of it. I didn't expect that people would be afraid of me because of the images that I made. And that was really shocking for me, was having different people say like, oh, you're so nice. I didn't expect you to be this nice. Or again, it's the preconceived notion of what we lay about identity onto people because of, of how we think about them, that just because I would make an image cutting into my own body that somehow maybe I wasn't like, I don't know, a nice person or altogether there or that I was too radical. And that's the nicest thing for me in terms of the queer community that I grew up in is they're the most interesting uh, group of intellectuals uh, <laughs> that I have ever really met <laughs> in terms of their openness. And I'm happy that that is the community that I got to grow up in. I think that those images, they still hold such an ability to shock, which is in itself quite shocking in this day and age when you feel like you, you know, we've seen so much. But I am really struck by the way that you almost have a tenderness towards them when, when I see you talking about them on, in, in video interviews um, and read about you talking about them in interviews. Um, and I love the way that you sort of honor those images and place them somewhere where they can be a sort of they can be on a sort of pedestal for discourse rather than they're not just there to simply shock. I mean, I'm of the generation yeah. that saw the sensation exhibition at the Saatchi Gallery in London when it was Damien Hirst. Or you think yeah. about some of those maple thought images and you feel like they are simply there to shock and there's a coldness. Whereas with your images, they do shock. And that is the sort of there is a sort of initial sensation. But it's different. It's, 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 there's more of a tenderness towards them, I feel. I mean, would you say that's a fair assessment? I think, I think that that's a nice assessment because I think of myself as a very tender, humanistic person who has no ill will really in life. And so I think it's a fair assessment that that comes off because that's, you know, a core of who I am as a person. And I think that also I could have made them really, I think that they're intense images, but I could have made them so much more intense and angry. Really? <laughs> and what I like about them is there's not much anger in them. There's the idea of, of the manipulation of flesh, but it's not like some uh, crime scene, you know, and uh, or how we think about violence. Like to me, what I really appreciate about the images is they talk about a certain notion of of potential violence that can happen on the body, but they're not violent images. And so they're, com they're complex and it's good to have complex images to chew over in your life, you know? Uh, I have had so many people send me their theses on my work over the years. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always interesting to see how people read them, you know? Also in your work, there's this idea that, um, of course, a portrait doesn't have to be, doesn't have to feature a face. Um, I wanted to talk to you about 700 Neem Road. Oh, yeah. Your, yeah. your, your series. Yeah, I mean, talking about series, you said how, you know, you've done all these books that feature um, just series of photographs. And I've been looking, I do have that book and I was looking at it and you made it in, or you, in 2016 and it's a series of photographs you took of Elizabeth Taylor's house. The title refers to the address. Yeah. And I think, I believe you photographed inside her house in the three months prior to her death and then the months immediately afterwards. Yeah. 
This is true. Um, they are very beautiful and lovely images. I mean, the colour stands out and all the lovely giggles that are associated with her. Um, and you really feel a sense of her in the images, even though her body isn't present in them. Can you, I have to ask, can you tell me what she was like? I, I think you did meet her in person. No, I never got to meet her. She peeked at me behind the curtain one day. But <laughs> so she was, was actually there. Because I kind of didn't want my, the influence of her early on to be placed on the work. And then I had no idea that she would pass. I mean, they were actually planning a trip. And I was so excited because Tim, her assistant, who I got very, very close to in the making of the work, who really helped not only fill me with stories about Elizabeth, but so I felt like I got to know her in a way. I mean, I feel that the, the book is a very intimate piece about Elizabeth Taylor. Um, but he was telling me how all of a sudden all the Louis Vuitton suitcases that were all like tagged with a number and mine on it in lavender were going to fill the foyer of the house as she was going to go to New York. And that trip never happened. She was hospitalized. And then they were prepping a room that's in the book for her to come home to. It's towards the last pages of the book where it's like almost like angel wallpaper and it's a blue room. And... Um, and so that room was prepped really, really quickly for her, for her to come home to be able to be downstairs instead of upstairs. And, uh, you know, she passed away. And I, I remember saying, you know, I can finish this up. I don't need to come back. I'm really, really sorry for all your loss because it was a very close-knit staff who had worked with Elizabeth and lived in the house. I mean, they didn't have offices. The offices was the house. And so I felt that my presence was probably not a presence that would be uh, desired at that point in time in terms of grief. And what happened instead was they even validated my work more and realizing that this was indeed more or less the last portrait of Elizabeth. So the day where the abstract photographs of the jewelry happened outside where it's shining up to the light was literally because the auction house was coming that day to take all the jewelry out of the house, which I have images of them packing up the jewelry. And uh, I just said to Tim, you know, because everybody was so distraught, well, let's just, let me just bring the jewelry outside and let's put it on a, on a cushion and let's just like make some pictures of it because it'll never be in this house again. It'll never, it'll never be here again. And all the jewelry actually was in the house, which most people didn't know um, because of the value of <laughs> Amazing. it. Amazing. And uh, I, I don't know, the whole entire body of work was just actually one of the most moving experiences of my life in terms of not knowing somebody but actually being allowed in to do something that was that intimate. How did you come to do that? Did you, uh, was it your idea and did you approach her or what, where did that come from? <laughs> we shared the same accountant in LA. <laughs> so ironically, my accountant kept saying to me for years, do you want to do anything with Elizabeth Taylor? And I kept saying, you know, Derek, I don't really do celebrity. It's not what I necessarily, you know, do. And uh, then I, I went off and I made that body of work inauguration. 
And with making inauguration, I was looking at Eggleston a lot because of his body of work election eve in relationship to Carter being elected to being president. And Eggleston went around the south and Georgia, around Plains, Georgia, and made these beautiful, like very quiet landscapes. But I knew that I wanted inauguration to be the inauguration of Obama. You know, that this was like the first time in our country that this kind of leadership was ever going to take place. And then in looking at Eggleston, he also photographed at much after Elvis's death, Graceland. But then I just kind of realized that a portrait could be of a place or of a time. And much of how I think about my city's work is also portraiture to a certain extent. Um, and that I went, to, I went to the accountant and I said, okay, I've got an idea. And he said, okay, well, let's go to the house and pitch it. And so I talked to Tim and I, you know, I had brought the stack of my books, including the Guggenheim catalog at that point. And Tim went over everything with Elizabeth and what I wanted to do. And Elizabeth said, yeah, I want her here. I want her to do it. And uh, the, the end of the work was going to be us editing it, actually, and looking at it together. But that never happened. And the trustees of the estate and even her family members say to this day, you know, she probably would have really liked it, but also really had a hard time with it because she was used to the fashion photographers and the kind of architectural digest. And that's not the mode that I work in. So I ended up uh, being able to do this and I had to get permission from the trustees and I hung all the pictures, images that I wanted to edit up in my studio and we had about a three hour conversation about it and then they said, okay, because I had a, a you know, an NDA. Um, is that what it's called? Disclosure? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And that's the first time I ever had a body of work that I actually had to sign legal documents to. So when I would go up there, I'd spend a lot of time in the house, obviously, watching the light. I mean, for six months, it was like this place I would go. And I'd go home and Julie would be like, well, what did you see today? And I was just like, I, it's a vortex that I'm not allowed to speak of. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's how it was. I was actually really, really scared to do anything wrong. Such an, I mean, really to her credit that she got what you were doing, especially if you said she was used to Architectural Digest. Amazing story. I love that. Um, what do you think? I mean, it's so interesting examining a person through the objects they own. Um, what do you think would be two or three of the things that would represent you if somebody rep uh, photographed your space? Mm books any particular books hmm. i like a lot of different books um i have a pretty large monograph collection in my office and there's some really rare books that i just really appreciate um i have friedlander's american monuments that's a really hard book to find uh eggleston's guide first book um i have like a number of you know, first editions that are just so beautifully printed that they almost make me weep. And so I think that, you know, I've always surrounded myself with books and grew up a very, you know, person who read a lot. And um, I'm always the first person who peruses a person's bookshelf 
to uh, to figure out like who they are as a as a person. I think of books and how they're represented in people's homes as uh, as also a portrait in a certain way. This year marks another milestone for you. It's the year you turned sixty. Yeah, in April I do. Congratulations, <laughs> sixty. So I'm next. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> are you working on new projects? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I am editing a big project right now. There's folders and little tabs over there. That's how I edit. Is I still edit off of contact sheets. I don't edit, even though I shoot digitally at this point, I don't edit off the screen. I still have to have everything printed out and tabbed, and then I write notes and pick them. And But I, I bought an RV in August, and I went out on the road um, and did a whole body of work that's going to be called 2020. And I mainly, because we were dropping off our son at Tulane for college, uh, Julie and I wrapped through the south uh, going to monuments that have been removed and are still in place and photographing the American landscape and bearing witness to the sites of Breonna Taylor and so forth, um, memorial sites. And the last six years, the work has been grappling with how did we get to a place as a country that would elect somebody like Trump. And so the modernist does that in some ways, that body of work. And then the last exhibition I had right before COVID hit was at Regan Projects. And then the show got closed down with rhetorical landscapes, which are stop motion collages with photographs of swamps I made in Florida. And so this one is also dealing with landscape, but also monument and kind of moves you through. And I, it's a little bit like inauguration, but much larger body of work because it's again, a road trip. So I think about it in terms of bodies of work like 1999 and in and around home. That's just trying to tell that political story right now of, of the times that we're living in. Well, I listen, I look forward to seeing the, the next project and best of luck with it all. And thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciated talking to you. Thanks, Kathy. Have a good day. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.